The scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 23, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire." Good morning. Good to see all of you. It's been a couple of weeks that I've been here. Last week I had the privilege of preaching at a fellow TCT church in St. Paul, and it's just a blessing to worship with another vibrant church body. So it's good to be back with all of you and see your faces. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get to work. Father in heaven, we pray for your blessing. We pray for your strength We pray, Lord God, that in every way our soul is weak, that you would give us strength and you would fill us, Lord God, where we are empty. And we do pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us this morning with your word. And we're thankful, Lord God, for your word. What would we do without it? And yet you have spoken to us. So I do pray, Lord God, that you would now cause these words to penetrate deeply into the depths of our soul, Lord God, And we would be convinced again that you love us and that nothing will separate us from your love. And that you have made with David, you've made with us an everlasting covenant. And therefore, there are things in this world that we can be completely certain and confident about. And we're thankful for that, especially in a world where there isn't much of anything that we can truly be confident in. But we can be confident in you and in your love and in your purposes prevailing no matter what the circumstances might be. So we pray, Lord God, that we would rejoice not only in the word that you've spoken, but in your character that it reveals and how we see you at work in our world today. So I pray, Father, that you would build your church this morning, build each one of us as individuals so that our faith would be more firmly rooted and deeply convinced of your steadfast love. And we pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So this morning, the theme of the chapter and this sermon that I'll be bringing to you is the theme of covenant. David simply rejoices, the king of Israel, that the kingdom that he serves... And the kingdom that he served was ultimately in the hands of God. 
For David, God's covenant translates into future confidence. It translates into future confidence that God's kingdom will indeed stand forever. And God's kingdom will become increasingly brighter. Now let me talk a little bit about the glory of covenant. Because the reality is for all of us in our world, we live in a consumer culture. And our thinking is increasingly affected by the consumer mindset. Now there's definitely places where consumerism is positive and it has its place. I have my favorite stores. I would imagine you do too. And I, as I imagine you do, like the freedom of being able to shop where I want, where I can find a good deal or a good service. And if that's not the case, I can take my business elsewhere. That's a good thing. The downside to consumerism is that it can increasingly shape the way that we think about all of life. For instance, we're a culture that places the individual above the community. And it places the satisfaction of the individual as the highest goal that we can achieve. We're a culture that prides itself on the virtues of, in our day, tolerance, acceptance, and which is now how we define what we mean by love. Let's look at marriage for just a second. The institution that most clearly represents love's highest expression, the irony of this is that marriage, the highest expression and representation of love, is culturally speaking in shambles. Why? And I'll submit to you that the reason why marriage is in shambles is because culturally we've shifted from our understanding it as an institution that is governed by covenant and shifted from that to understanding it as an institution that's governed by consumerism, which places the desire of the individual as the highest virtue. So in other words, marriage has become an institution in which personal fulfillment and personal gratification are its highest goals and highest virtues. And this is, I think, synonymous. The pursuit of my personal gratification as the highest goal is synonymous with why culturally we love, maybe not we, but culturally love the idea of tolerance and acceptance. That's what we mean. Everybody should have the highest goal of pursuing their personal gratification, no matter what the cost. And this kind of tolerance and acceptance is while we think about what love is. And ironically, the ruling mentality, this ruling mentality, has redefined love from self-sacrifice to doing whatever you must do to self-serve. 
And this, by so doing, I think, destroys the highest institution of love, which is marriage. Which was really designed to be a covenant institution, not consumer institution. One of the effects, practically speaking, is that in consumer mentality, it forces individuals within that place into marketing mode. So theoretically, let me explain this. If I'm in a relationship with someone, then they are there ultimately to help me achieve my personal fulfillment. And this doesn't give them the freedom to be a broken sinner in the relationship. In fact, they'll actually be forced to hide it and put their best foot forward as much as humanly possible. It essentially turns them into a product for my consumption. And it also removes the mandate on me to love them and embrace them for who they truly are and all of their brokenness and all of their weaknesses. And the irony of this is that tolerance, which we love and celebrate, actually produces a kind of intolerance. Because when it really comes down to it, I can't tolerate you when you're standing in the way of me pursuing my highest goal. You're getting in the way of that. So tolerance that we love doesn't produce love, it kind of produces an intolerance. When the institution of love, we can go a step further functions as a place where I pursue my personal gratification, and this is going down the road just a little bit, it actually dehumanizes ourselves because it turns my spouse in the analogy into a product, and it actually dehumanizes myself as well because it equates me and my existence as a one-to-one with my desire. I desire something, therefore I am. I'm the sum total of my desires. That is not the biblical view of personhood, of what it means to be an image bearer of the living God. In fact, we could go a step further and say this is a kind of slavery of sorts. Rather than my spouse having the freedom to be who she truly is, She must now conform, market herself to meet my specifications so that my desires will be fulfilled. So I think marriage is in shambles because it is ceasing to be a covenant relationship and defined and governed by covenant. And honestly, I think the church is in loads of trouble because of this too. The church now, increasingly so, has the responsibility to market the gospel in hopes that you'll buy it rather than shepherding souls. In a consumer system, people must be sold, and in the covenant system, people are called to submission. And again, I'm speaking generally of the church at large. And culturally, what could be happening? And the reason why this is alarming, let me 
bring this home here. The reason why this is really alarming is because God has designed marriage and the church to be institutions that are redemptive and healing. That's the purpose of marriage. That's the purpose of the church to reflect God's glory, but also to be places that are guarded in covenant, that are secure for redemption and for healing. But consumerism won't let them function this way. True tolerance and true diversity actually thrive within the confines of covenant, where structure, where a structure of security makes it possible for everyone involved to be fully human in all of their good and in all of their bad. Marriage is beautiful and redemptive when a couple can know that they are able to present themselves as they truly are. And when they can have that freedom to be fully who they are and all of their good and all of their bad, redemption and healing can start taking place. And I think the church is similar. People can change and find redemption in Christ, when they are free to confess and when they are free to repent. And this can't happen in a consumer system. Consumer Christianity drives people to perform. And grace, by contrast, is only operative I think, in a covenant community. What does this have to do with 2 Samuel 23? Let me try to connect the dots here. And I hope what I tried to do there is I tried to help us see why covenant is a beautiful thing. Why it's not outdated. It's not archaic. That if we really want to be a loving people and if we really want to find true love, as Jesus has outlined it, we need the confines of covenant, of promise. And in 2 Samuel 23, I think that we learn that within David's kingdom, He needed grace. He needed redemption. And he gets that through God's covenant-keeping love. And now, in 2 Samuel 23, he pays tribute to God's covenant-keeping love and prophesies of its future. So let's look at 2 Samuel 23, and we read David's words. So listen carefully, church. Listen carefully, because the king is about to speak, and he's doing so for the very last time. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed, the son of God, or I'm sorry, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. What an introduction! This is David, 
the highest man in the land. He's about to speak. He's the sweet psalmist of Israel, the one who has been teaching us and sharing his heart with us. Listen carefully. And we're about to hear more than just the words of King David. We're about to hear the words of the living God. This is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. What is he going to say? When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout on the earth, from the earth. This is the effect of when one rules justly. A just king. A king who fears God. He is like the sun that shines forth on a cloudless morning. He dawns on his people and he makes grass to sprout from the earth. This is the, the, the effect of a godly king, David says. For does not my house stand so with God? And this is the key phrase. For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. What David is saying is that my house is standing God has begun a work in my kingdom. And you know what? God's going to complete this work that he has begun in my kingdom because he made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Isn't God going to bring it to fruition, he says? Yes, he will. He is confident because God has made with him a covenant. What is this covenant? Going back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, I'll read a couple of phrases there. This is the promise that God has made with David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all his vision, Nathan spoke to David. So there's going to be one that is going to come and take the seat of David, and he is going to be this king that is going to dawn on his people. And David is coming to the end of his days. He's about to lie down with his fathers. And he begins looking to the future of his kingdom. And make no mistake here. David isn't boasting because his enterprise or his name will live on. He is excited about that. And he is rejoicing in that, yes. But he rejoices ultimately because David's kingdom can be summarized as a positive kingdom for God's people. And God is yet to bring another level of blessing through it. Everything that God has begun in David's kingdom, David looks to the future and he sees more yet to happen. And he is excited because God's covenant is going to come to pass. 
And the brightest days of David's kingdom are yet to be experienced. And then I also want to say this. I think he rejoices because his very own kingdom will produce a king that will save David himself from his sins. Let me say that again. I think David is rejoicing because his very own kingdom, the person that is going to come after him, this promised one that God had promised him, David is looking forward to his own kingdom and the future king that is going to save David from his own sins. Let me make the case for that. How do I see this? Well, if we take a look at the second part of chapter 23, we'll see a list of David's mighty men. You guys see that there in your Bibles? Now, this would be a very easy section to skip over because it's filled with all kinds of complicated names, just like a genealogy, and it doesn't seem to have a lot there for us. But it's telling us something very important. It's telling us that David's kingdom was great, but it wasn't complete. It's telling us that David is a righteous king, but he isn't sinless. And it tells us that David's kingdom was life-giving for God's people. There is a sense in which David's kingdom did dawn on his people and bring them life. But as much as his kingdom was life-giving, it was also life-taking. Look at the way the list ends at the very last part of chapter 23. What do we see there? Whose name is the last name that's mentioned in 2 Samuel 23? It's Uriah, the Hittite. Close the story. And you just had to go there, didn't you? It just had to go there. Can you think about that? When you think about David's recounting and his story and his record of his kingdom, how does it end? Uriah. Remember him? You remember Uriah? As great as David's kingdom was, it wasn't great for everyone in it. Do you guys remember Uriah back in chapter 11 and 12? Who was Uriah? Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba, whom David slept with, and to cover it up, he had Uriah murdered in a scandalous account. Right? So as great as David's kingdom was, it wasn't great for everyone in it. And Uriah, if he was still alive, he would bear witness to that. He would testify to that. Did Uriah experience David as a king who ruled justly? Who dawned on him like the morning light, like a sun through the clouds, or like the rain that causes grass to grow? Did Uriah experience David this way? No, he didn't. David actually dawned on Uriah like a black cloud who brought him death and not life. So David was overall a just king, but he wasn't perfectly just. David feared God but he didn't always fear God. He was generally a righteous king, but he was not sinless. David's kingdom was, humanly speaking, great, but it was also stained with David's guilt and Uriah's blood. And this is how the end of the chapter 
kind of dangles in the air, and it begs the question, who will redeem David? You see, when, when, when David's kingdom is recounted, these are the mighty men. These are, this is David's kingdom. And the writer places Uriah right at the end. And it's almost as if there's a dot, dot, dot. It's pointing us forward to this question, who's going to fix this problem that David created? Who's going to pay that bill that David racked up? Who's going to pay it? Who's going to atone for that? Yes, it was a great, humanly speaking, it was a great kingdom. But there's still an outstanding balance, and it's pointing us to who's going to deal with this? Who's going to deal with the rightful wrath that David deserves for that? And then there's a great, I hope you guys see this. There's a great reversal here. It ends with Uriah, the, the, the blood that stains David's kingdom. And here David is the king who tries to atone for his sin by requiring the blood of his servant. Isn't that interesting? And this chapter now points us to what? Who is the king that's going to save David? It points us to the king... Jesus, who is going to spill his blood for his servant. David was the king who required the blood of his servant. Jesus is the king who spills his blood to cover his servant. Everything that was wrong with David's kingdom is going to be reversed and fixed. And David's kingdom, he required his people to fix his sin. And in the kingdom that is going to be fulfilled... In God's covenant, the king is going to serve his people and spill his blood for them. Isn't that amazing? David comes to the end of his life, and he uses the very most important speech, perhaps, in the history of the world, to say that God has made with me an everlasting covenant. And David points us to the certainty of this coming king who is Jesus. But this chapter also says something more, I think. The chapter makes the case that if God were not a God of covenant, David would be rightfully consumed by his just wrath and that would rightly be poured out against his sin. But because he did make a promise to send a life-giving king in his place, and I would say the first person that this king is dawning himself upon is David himself. God makes a promise to send the life-giving king in his place. He can find grace and he can find redemption within this covenant love. David needs Jesus. And David needs a God of covenant. That's the only way he has his life and breath is moving about. Now, how would you like it? Some concluding thoughts. How would you like it if your life were recorded and summarized 
for the world to see. And Uriah was the last thing that everybody saw on your record. The writer didn't even bother to bury it in the middle so it might go unnoticed. No, they stuck it right on the end so that everybody would notice it. How would you like that if that's the accounting of your life? As I thought about this, it was like, imagine this. It almost gives you this feeling. Imagine you're eating a gourmet meal, and it's just wonderful and exquisite in every aspect, right? So you're about to leave the restaurant with a delicious taste in your mouth. But then before you can actually leave, the waitress or waiter forces you to sit down and woof down Ten sliders from White Castle. So now you leave with the greasy taste in your mouth, not the delicious meal. And I think that's kind of how this list goes. It lays out this exquisite meal talking about David, the glory of David's kingdom. And then at the end, by the way, Uriah. Those are the White Castle sliders. And now there's kind of a a gross taste in our mouth about David's kingdom, isn't there? But as long as David has anything to say about it, and he does, Uriah is not the very last thing that is true of him. What is the last thing that's true of him? I would argue God's covenant love is. Uriah does not ultimately define him. He isn't ultimately shackled to Uriah. He is ultimately set free in forgiveness and redemption that is found in the security of God's covenant-keeping love. And you'll remember, after chapter 11, after chapter 12, when David hit the darkest point of his life, Pastor Charlie was pointing out for us week after week, that David was receiving the discipline of the Lord, but God was working kindness to him through that. God was actually using that in his redemption. So therefore, I argue that David isn't ultimately defined by his failure or by his sin even, but that he's a child of the living God, and as long as he repents, he'll always find grace and redemption within God's kingdom. Some of you would have given up on David. I know I would have given up on him. Maybe I should just speak for myself. When we were going through those chapters, when we were really meditating deeply on David's life and what he had done, when we were thinking about his adultery, when we were thinking about his murder and his scandalous cover-up, when we thought about his daughter Tamar and her rape and how David was just completely absent and non-helpful there, when he was non-engaged with his son Absalom, I got to be honest, I was ready to throw in the towel with David. I was really deeply done with him. My patience for David had run out. And maybe yours did too, I don't know. And the truth is, sin is offensive and it is disgusting and it is destructive 
But it is true that we tend to see it as such in other people more than we see it in ourselves. It's easier to be offended sometimes with other people's sin as we see it, not so much our own. And yet, in our best, in my best moments, I can also come along and say about myself, and I realize this about myself as well, while it's true that it's easy to see other people's sin and be impatient with it, it's also sometimes really hard to believe that God can actually forgive me for my sin. And I don't know if you've ever come to that place of, I don't know if I really believe that God would forgive me. How could God accept me? Really, how could he? And I think this gets to the heart of the consumer in me where grace actually, in some ways, offends me. There is a sense in which I love being saved by my works. And that's really where my heart is. It's easy to soften my sin in light of others. That's one of the ways that I function by works. It's easy to be short with those who inconvenience me. And it's difficult for me to truly believe that God would forgive me and accept me as is. So what do I do? I try to freshen myself up in a thousand different ways to make myself more presentable to God. I know that I'm saved by grace, but the reality is it's very difficult for me every once in a while, to really believe that and to live in that light. Now, the reality is, all of us have Uriah on our record. And God confronted my refusal to forgive David when we were going through those lessons and in that time by helping me to see that if I was in David's same position, I would have likely done a similar thing. Could you have done what David did? Would you have? And if your initial reaction is, no way, I would never do that, maybe you should rethink it. Maybe if you had the knowledge that David had, or the lack of knowledge, maybe if you had the power and the influence and the resources that David had, maybe you would do something just as bad. And that's the way God dealt with my refusal to forgive David. You know what? You could have, maybe you would have done something just as bad, perhaps even worse. And then, by God's grace, he helped me to realize that I actually have sinned in some grievous ways. And I, too, have Uriah on my record. And now my feelings of disgust directed 
towards David were now directed inwardly towards me. And I realized that if I cannot extend grace to David, then I cannot receive the grace of God for myself. And that's true for all of us. If you cannot extend grace to somebody else and forgiveness, you can't accept it for yourself. If somebody else's sin is more grievous than yours, then you don't realize your sin and you don't realize your Savior. So here I am, rejoicing in God's limitless grace, celebrating the covenant love of God that I too am secure within. And what about you? Do you come to the end of your life, to the end of who you are, and can you say that my greatest joy and my greatest confidence and the very most defining thing about who I am is this, God's covenant love for me in Christ. Is that the foundation of your hope? Is that the sum total of your hope and your confidence and your boast? Because we all have Uriah on our record. But it doesn't, the story doesn't have to end there. Jesus is the king who shed his blood for his servants. And no matter how great your sin is, if you repent and believe in the gospel, you will be saved and your life is now lived out in the security of grace. No matter how great your sin is, no matter how great David's sin is, God's grace is even greater. And that's because of covenant. God's promise. You can count on God's redemption. Why? Because he has made with David an everlasting covenant, and by extension, as it's fulfilled in Christ, with all those who put their faith in Christ, your life is now defined and secured within the confines of God's covenant-keeping love. And as we think about marriage and as we think about church, you can see how David was healed and restored by the security of God's grace and covenant. That he could be who he really was. He didn't have to cover it up and deny. And he could do that in the security of knowing God will receive, God will restore, God will redeem. And by extension, we do that for one another in the, con- in the context of marriage, in the context of church. And this is how it becomes a healing, redemptive community. So I call to us, turn to Christ. He will dawn on you like the sun through the clouds and like rain that grows the grass. He will always forgive and he will give you life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you, Lord, again, and we just ask that you would take the reality of your covenant-keeping love, and we pray, Father, that you would work it into the depths of our soul, 
And help us, Lord God, to realize that our sin is great, but your grace is greater. And that you have made a way, Lord God, to save David. And if you can save David, you can save every sinner on the face of the earth who calls to you in repentance. So we do pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord God, to be real about our sin but also, Lord, to know that our story doesn't end there. And that isn't the ultimate thing that's true of us who repent and find forgiveness in Christ. But your covenant-keeping love is. And we ask that you would help us to go in that confidence and in that freedom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.